This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 111. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. Today, we have another barn burner for you. Tracy Borman returns to the show for her fourth visit. And this time, we focus our chat on the man, the myth, the legend, Thomas Cromwell. Then on Ask the Expert, Elizabeth Norton returns to answer your questions about the Boleyn women. And lastly, I'll tell you a story about the final 1,000 days of Elizabeth I's reign. A special shout out to my newest patrons, Rosie D., Stephanie S., Angela D., Sandra G., Dwayne M., and Natasha K. Thank you so much for your support. And thanks for all the ongoing support of my existing patrons as well. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to either Patreon or Podbean, and I'll include the link in the show notes. Patrons do have access to all kinds of cool stuff like the tutor course, ebooks, exclusive patron-only content, and so much more. All right, without further ado, Tracy Borman. Tracy, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. I can't believe it's four times. It's been such a pleasure each one. So I'm looking forward to chatting again. Well, today we're going to talk about Thomas Cromwell. You have written a book about him, and I feel like there are so many questions surrounding him that I'm really excited to pick your brain a little bit today. Oh, well, I always love chatting to you, and I particularly love talking about Cromwell because I'm a bit of a fan, but I know he's like, he does divide the uh, history community. (laughs) He does indeed. And we'll get to that, definitely. But let's kind of begin with his career at court. And I don't consider myself an expert whatsoever when it comes to Cromwell. I only know bits and pieces. So I'm really hoping that you can fill in the blanks for me. Sure. When it comes to him, am I correct in thinking that he joined Wolsey's service in the 1520s? That's right. We don't know exactly when, um, but probably the early 1520s, because, you know, Wolsey is very good at spotting talent. And Cromwell comes to his notice as a lawyer. Um, He has already done very well for himself by that stage because Cromwell comes from nowhere. He's the son of a blacksmith in a fairly seedy part of London, um, although it isn't today. Putney is a very nice part of London, but it wasn't when Cromwell was born there in the late 15th century. Um, But he kind of betters himself, and I really admire him for this. He takes himself off, leaves England behind, and kind of has what we would call a gap year, except it's more like a gap decade. He goes traveling around Europe, um, and he works for a merchant in Florence for a while. He turns up in the the great trading centers of the Netherlands before returning to London and Wow. I mean, what an experience that was for Cromwell. And clearly it gives him an edge over most other people um, actually in London society. And he sets himself up as a very successful lawyer. And as I say, this, that's really how he attracts the notice of Henry VIII's right-hand man, uh, Cardinal Wolsey. So sometime during the early 1520s. What role did he have then at the beginning of his service with Wolsey? Well, it's interesting because one of the first jobs he did for Wolsey was to dissolve uh, some small monastic houses. Now, he did that 
to um, aid the creation of uh, Wolsey's uh, grand new college um, at Oxford. And um, and so that's why the, the monasteries were dissolved. But I just think, gosh, did that plant a seed in Cromwell's mind for a kind of future job? Um, because these monasteries, they weren't dissolved for any kind of corrupt practices or anything. It was just expediency on Wolsey's part that he wanted them done. And Cromwell was an expert in conveyancing and in, in sort of property law. So he handled it for him. And he obviously did it brilliantly because uh, Wolsey then just gave him commission after commission. And Cromwell became as much a right-hand man to Wolsey as Wolsey was to the king. So Cromwell is edging ever closer to court at this time. Then we have Wolsey's downfall. And I'm curious, how did Cromwell, you know, obviously you just said that he was kind of the right-hand man of Wolsey, but how did he become indispensable enough for Henry VIII to look at him as the successor of Wolsey? Yeah, and it was so quick um, because Cromwell came out of nowhere. He, uh, While he served Wolsey, he wasn't really that much of a kind of personality at court. It was very much just he was serving Wolsey who was serving the king. Um, But what Cromwell did, and I think it's greatly to his credit, he stood by his man um, when Wolsey fell from favour. It was like rats and sinking ships. All of his former servants deserted him because they didn't want to be associated with this man who'd fallen foul of the king. Except Cromwell, he was one of the few who just stood by Wolsey. And he actually went to court to plead Henry VIII to look favorably on Wolsey. And I think Henry admired that. You know, here's a man who has the courage to speak up uh, for Cardinal Wolsey when basically his name is mud at court by this stage. And I think Henry, you know, he, he, Wolsey might have lost his favor, but he never lost his love. I think Henry still had a, a real affection for Cardinal Wolsey. So um, he really appreciated the fact that Cromwell was speaking up for him. But um, undoubtedly, you know, Cromwell was also out for himself as well. And he did very, very well. He, he proved himself to the king. He soon became indispensable to him. And Henry was just as good at spotting talent as Wolsey had been. And so uh, when it was clear that, um, you know, Wolsey wasn't coming back, you know, he, he was facing charges of treason when he actually died on his way back to London. Uh, that's when I think Henry started to see Cromwell as just the perfect successor. And that's exactly what he turned out to be. He filled Wolsey's shoes just perfectly. And I think the lovely thing is as well, they were like two peas in a pod, Cromwell and Wolsey. They both were very, very gifted administrators. They made it easy for the king. They sort of shouldered his burdens. But they were both of very lowly birth. I mentioned that Cromwell was the son of a blacksmith. Wolsey was the son of a butcher. Um, And there is a theory that Henry deliberately chose them because they were of lowly status and he felt threatened by noblemen. But I I don't buy into that. I think it's just that Henry recognised their talent and their potential. And he liked people who got the job done. So now we have Cromwell in this new role um, on the side of the king, basically. Something I've always been curious about. Now, when it came to like gifts of land grants and titles and such, what liberties could Cromwell have taken in these assignments? Or did he have to pass everything directly through the king? Yeah, he had to keep it very much above board. And um, and even though he's seen as this kind of grasping, very cynical politician who lined his own pockets, everything was 
according to the letter of the law with Cromwell. So yes, if he spotted an opportunity to uh, to seize some property, then he might go for it. But he did so only in a very strictly legal way. And also Henry was keen to reward Cromwell with grants of land, with titles, with um, ever more positions at court, because you know, he was deeply grateful to him uh, for his service, and particularly as Cromwell, very early on in his service to Henry, became embroiled in the whole annulment, uh, the Henry's desire for an annulment of his marriage to first the first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Um, and he was getting nowhere with that. And then he set Cromwell to work on it with Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. And the two men worked really effectively together towards um, extricating the king from his unwanted wife so that he might marry Anne Boleyn. So during the king's great matter, was Cromwell cruel to Catherine of Aragon and Mary? Actually, Cromwell was a lot kinder to Catherine of Aragon and to Mary, certainly kinder than Henry was himself. He went to uh, visit Catherine on several occasions. I think he he really was trying to get her to go quietly because he knew it would be easier uh, for her. And, And he was very kind to Mary too and famously gave Mary a ring, which then was sort of Cromwell's downfall because it was rumored he was trying to court her and he wanted to marry her and make himself king and all this rubbish. Um, but he he was actually a lot kinder than you might expect. And um, I think he recognized that it would be much better for both women if they went along with what Henry wanted. Um, but of course, both were quite um, principled, very principled. Um, Catherine never stopped believing that she was the true queen. I think she's she is to be greatly admired for her principles. But in the end, it didn't do her any good. And she ended up living in increasing misery uh, in a succession of different lodgings away from court after Henry had banished her and then had the marriage dissolved. When it comes to Cromwell's involvement with the Boleyn family, is there any evidence that shows us maybe when it began or how it began? I think um, there are the occasional um, references to Cromwell, um, particularly in relation to George Boleyn and Thomas Boleyn, so Anne's uh, brother and father. Um, And it's by about um, sort of 1533. So when it's clear that um, Anne Boleyn is is very much in the ascendancy, you know, that her, her marriage to Henry has taken place in secret in January that year, that's when her name is mentioned a lot in relation to Cromwell. And he is referred to, I think, in one uh, letter as, as being her creature. Um, he's very much working for Anne because effectively he helps her to the throne by, you know, speeding forward the annulment uh, and helping Anne to succeed as the second of Henry's wives and, and Queen of England as she is crowned in, in June 1533. And they really are working hand in glove, these two, Cromwell and Anne Boleyn. They're very close. Um, they're, they're aligned in terms of what they're both aiming for with the the final resolution of the great matter, as it's called, you know, Henry's uh, desire for an annulment and his desire for a son. But they're also ideologically aligned. They're both reformers. And 
Cromwell is very, very genuine in this. Uh, again, he's being painted as just using religion for his own um, means and his own ends. But actually, you know, he is genuine in his desire to root out corruption in the church. He's been very influenced during his years on the continent um, by all these radical new ideas that are bubbling away. And he takes great risks for his faith. His library is filled with books that probably would have had him condemned for heresy. So let's put from our minds any thought that Cromwell is just this kind of cynical, corrupt official. There's a lot more to him than that. And of course, there was to Anne too. Um, She was quite radical in matters of religion. Um, She had very forthright views, and she certainly encouraged Henry along the path of reform. So when Cromwell and Anne were good, they were really good. <laughs> but of course, it didn't quite stay like that. Is there any truth behind Anne being upset with how far Cromwell wanted to take reform in the country? What she was upset about um, was the dissolution of the monasteries in particular in terms of where the proceeds, where the funds from those monasteries would go. Because while Cromwell was very efficiently siphoning off all those um, profits to the royal treasury, Anne believed that they should go to charitable causes. And that was the beginning of the end for their relationship. It might seem like a kind of fairly small point of detail, but they really argued very furiously over this. And Cromwell started to see Anne as an obstacle to his great reformation. And they made their animosity very, very clear. Anne said that she wished to see his head off his shoulders. So it was kind of started to feel like a battle to the death between these two great powerhouses of the Tudor court. So how involved was Cromwell then in the downfall and execution of Anne Boleyn? Well, I think we can forgive Cromwell for a lot of the things he's been accused of over the years, but not this. Um, I think Cromwell was instrumental in Anne's downfall. Now, the big question is, was he carrying out Henry's orders? I have no doubt that he masterminded the plot against Anne. And just to remind everyone, I'm sure they won't need it, but um, that that plot really uh, centred around an accusation of adultery um, against Anne with not just one, but five men, including incest with her own brother brother. Um, And so it was a real character assassination um, on Cromwell's part. But, you know, it will forever remain a question unless new sources come to light as just how much a role Henry played in instructing Cromwell. You know, you can kind of imagine the conversation, you know, just get me out of this marriage. Anne has disappointed him. She hasn't given him the son that he hoped. She's just had um, a daughter, Elizabeth. Very ironic that Henry, you know, kind of went to so much trouble with a son for a son, and actually it's Elizabeth who does the best of his children. But, um, or was it at the case that Cromwell is really pulling the strings because he and Anne are at loggerheads? It's this battle to the death, as I mentioned. So, you know, there is a theory that Henry would have been content just to have his marriage to Anne annulled, kind of pack her off to a nunnery or some such, um, and that it was Cromwell who made sure she was permanently got rid of. Um, and I think that theory does carry some water because he knew by this stage it was her neck or his. So he had to make absolutely sure of it. But he later boasted of having dreamed up uh, the affair of the Queen, as he put it, or words to that effect. He boasted that to the Ambassador Chapuis. So I think we can be fairly certain, you know, Cromwell is really 
instrumental uh, in all of this. And, and you know, it's it's very possible that Anne Boleyn may have, have lived to fight another day had Cromwell not had other ideas. Do we have any idea of what kind of relationship Cromwell had with the Seymours prior to Anne's downfall and execution? Yeah, he was very clever at um, backing the right horse. So when he realized that Henry was um, losing interest in Anne, when he was growing frustrated with her inability to give him a son, and she was um, upsetting him with her haughty and unqueenly behavior, you know, Cromwell isn't going to stick by her um, in the same way as he did with Woolsey um, when he realises it's all going wrong. So um, he does start to align himself with the Seymours. Now, in 1535, so a year before Anne's downfall, uh, there's a summer progress, the annual royal summer progress, and it takes in Wolf Hall, made very famous by the novels of Henry Mantel. And Wolf Hall was the country seat of the Seymour family. Now, Cromwell um, was very influential in drawing up the itinerary for that progress. So I I don't think it's any accident that uh, it included a stop at Wolf Hall. And it's there that uh, the king saw Jane, um, not for the first time, but she was certainly there. And uh, Cromwell encouraged his interest in Jane. And of course, that interest was also being encouraged by Jane's two brothers, uh, Thomas, who you know well, and Edward. So I think Cromwell is aligning himself very much with the Seymours, quite subtly, you know, Anne's still queen after all, um, but you can see from his actions that he's paving the way for wife number three. Oh, definitely. And I think that's about the time, too, um, when Thomas Seymour is, you know, given his first land grant. Or Yes, exactly. You start to see the enrichment of the ones who are growing in favor. It's always the same pattern, you know, the, the ones who are getting titles and lands. Um, and the Seymour brothers do certainly start to benefit from the king's interest in their sister. And we do know Edward Seymour was a reformist, but Jane is always seen as a a maybe Catholic sympathizer. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it is because uh, Jane Seymour uh, was very loyal to Catherine of Aragon. You know, she spoke very highly of her. Um, And then when she was married to Henry, she did speak up on behalf of those of the old faith, the Catholic faith. So um, either she just sympathized or actually, I think more likely, she um, did cling to that faith herself. Uh, As you say, her brother Edward was a a reformer, certainly. Um, But I think Jane was much more conservative in the issue of religion. And then Jane unexpectedly passes away after giving birth to a prince. And Cromwell is once again in a situation where he needs to find the king a new queen. (laughs) He does indeed. And I should have mentioned um, in aligning himself with the Seymours, I mean, he has pulled off a masterstroke because he actually... um, arranges a marriage between his son Gregory and Jane Seymour's sister, Elizabeth. Now, that is a dazzling success for Cromwell. He's kind of marrying into the royal family with this. And then when Jane Seymour gives birth to Prince Edward in 1837, that really cements the Seymour's position. They're kind of untouchable now because they finally succeeded where others have failed and they've given Henry a son. And and Cromwell's son Gregory is part of the Seymour family. So that's fantastic for him. But yes, in terms of another wife for Henry, because every king needs a spare heir, of course, um, Cromwell is determined to use this next marriage to political advantage and to diplomatic advantage. So rather than just 
cast his eye around the court, uh, as Henry probably was more inclined to do. He looks for an international alliance um, through marriage, and his gaze alights upon the Duchy of Cleves, um, part of uh, modern-day Germany, and uh, the sister of the Duke, Anne of Cleves, um, uh, really seems to him the ideal bride, because Cleves, like England, has rejected papal authority, so they're kind of on the path to reform. So it's all just perfect in Cromwell's eyes, but he's looking at it politically, which most royal marriages are. But what he doesn't take enough account of is the fact that Henry likes to be in love. He likes to feel attracted to his wives. And um, that's not something that really Cromwell has given any weight to at all with quite disastrous consequences. Yeah, that's exactly where I wanted to go next, because it always seemed like he was such a man in control. And I'm... (sighs) It blows my mind that it appears he was really blindsided by his arrest. Mm, Completely blindsided. Um, So Cromwell is arrested uh, really not long after the disastrous marriage between uh, Henry VIII and Anne of Cleves, who, by the way, is my favorite uh, of the wives. Um, And um, the, the sort of popular misconception is that Henry's getting revenge for this terrible marriage. He's married Anne. He, he, he's not attracted to her. He can't wait to get rid of her. Um, and, you know, all of Cromwell's enemies at court are gleefully predicting Cromwell is tottering, as one of them writes. Um, but actually then he recovers and Henry forgives him. He makes him Earl of Essex. Um, it seems that Cromwell is riding high again. But as you say, he's completely blindsided then by what happens next. So, there he is, apparently back in favour, newly ennobled, when on the 10th of June, 1540, he arrives to apparently a, a routine meeting of the Privy Council, and he is arrested. The guards step forward and they cry traitor, and Norfolk rips the seal of office from around Cromwell's neck, and he's bundled into a waiting barge and taken to the tower. Now, Cromwell had not seen this coming. This is a man who's always one step ahead. He'd been one step ahead of Anne Boleyn. And usually he'd been one step ahead of his two greatest enemies, the Duke of Norfolk and Stephen Gardner. But I think really it's those two men um, who were instrumental in his downfall. And I think only it just took a, a conversation with Henry because Henry's very paranoid by this stage. Um, he's he's getting older. He's getting very suspicious, like his late father Henry the Seventh. And all it takes is is Norfolk whispering in the king's ear that Cromwell is plotting treason. And this is when that old gossip about how nice he'd been to Princess Mary is used against him. Um, because they say to Henry, you know, he's planning to marry your eldest daughter to kind of boost his credentials to seize the throne. It is complete nonsense. The charges would not stand up in court, but they don't have to because they get a bill of attainder passed against Cromwell, which removes the need for a trial. So the world's greatest lawyer uh, is denied the opportunity to defend himself in court, and it goes straight from accusation to condemnation. The act of attainer makes me so angry and like, give them a chance, but they didn't want to. 
Oh, it's, it's a terrible legal device. And I have to say, it's one that Cromwell has made use of in the past. But um, but now he has, um, you know, been on the wrong side of it. And there's nothing he can do. And you sense his desperation as he's writing to Henry from the Tower of London. We still have his letters. There are three of those, um, I think, um, in existence. And, and the last letter from Cromwell, this is when I always love to see the original documents because um, you see from Cromwell's handwriting how desperate he was. This is not a letter that he would have, you know, dared send the king in any other time. You know, it's a shambles, really. The handwriting's awful. There are crossings out. But he's pleading for his life. And, And there is a final desperate postscript that reads, most gracious prince, I cry for mercy, mercy, mercy. Well, it's said that Henry VIII asks for that letter to be read to him three times. So it looks like he's going to change his mind. But sadly for Cromwell, he doesn't change his mind. And on the very same day as Henry's wedding to wife number five, Catherine Howard, Cromwell goes to the block. It's such a sad ending for such an important figure in Tudor history. It really is. It feels... Uh, too tragic um, because, you know, you use that word or that phrase blindsided, which is just perfect. And I think I wish he'd had the chance to defend himself. Um, even Anne Boleyn, who was equally blindsided in a completely unjust charges, you know, at least she had a trial. Cromwell was denied that. And it just seems like you know, a deeply ironic way to go as, you know, somebody who is world renowned as a lawyer and you're not able to defend yourself. And it's, it's really, I think, a testament to the brutality of Henry's court at this time. There was a wonderful quote I came across when researching my Henry's men book um, that said there was great snarling at court. And I think that sums it up. It's a very, very deadly place to be by 1540. And of course, his family was affected by his downfall as well. How, how did it affect his son Gregory and his wife Elizabeth Seymour? Well, this is when Cromwell's genius comes to play. The fact that he'd arranged that marriage for Gregory, I think, saved Gregory's life. It certainly made his his remaining life much happier than it would have been because the Seymours were still, you know, highly respected because. They were the ones who produced the son. Well, Jane, of course, but the whole family gained credit for that. Um, and so um, Gregory is married to a Seymour, so he's protected. And actually, there are no repercussions against him. I kind of um, admire the way Gregory tries to speak up for his um, for his father, whereas his wife, Elizabeth Seymour, very quickly tries to distance herself from her father-in-law. Um, she's, she's much more of a piece of work, I think. But um, they both live out their days, you know, unmolested. And um, in fact, Gregory Cromwell uh, dies of the sweat, the sweating sickness, uh, which also killed his mother and his two sisters, Uh, when his two sisters were very young. Um, But by then he'd had many children and actually very happy, comfortable life, thanks to that marriage that his father set up. Amazing. Tracy, what was the most interesting thing that you discovered about Cromwell while researching your books? 
I think what it was was just about his personality because this is what really astonished me. Um, I had an idea of him when I started um, and that idea was very much of, of the sort of fairly cold calculating politician. What I got from researching his personal accounts in particular was just what a great guy he was actually. You would want to go to his house for dinner. You know, he uh, he threw a good party. He invested considerable sums in um, being a very generous host. Um, he had lots of pets. Uh, he had a canary bird. Uh, he had probably what was um, a leopard actually in his back garden. Um, it was described as a strange beast and somebody was uh, appointed to, to kind of be its keeper. Uh, but I think we can be fairly sure from the descriptions that's what it was. And as well, what I love about Cromwell and what really surprised me was his humour. Now, I think that's what Hilary Mantel captures brilliantly in Wolf Hall. And I thought that that was a sort of dramatic device, but she's done her homework um, because actually there are lots of references to Cromwell being kind of irreverent and, if you like, cheeky. He makes the king laugh. If you heard that bark in the background, that's my dog Cromwell, <laughs> named after uh, Thomas Cromwell. So, you know, he's, he always tries to muscle in on the act. Anyway. He knew um, was talking about him. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You see, he hears his name. And, uh, and that's, I once disastrously took him along to an event because it was like a dog friendly venue and my talk was about Cromwell so of course every time I said his name the dog started barking so I yeah I've learned from that <laughs> um but yeah I just think he was a a humorous guy even he even made his enemies laugh kind of in spite of themselves and he's outspoken uh he doesn't put on any airs and graces when dealing with the king. He speaks his mind. And I think the king really respects him for that. And what a refreshing change that must have been for Henry, surrounded his all his life by flatterers and sycophants. And then you get this kind of ruffian, as Cromwell described himself, coming in, speaking his mind, um, you know, making fun at, at all these kind of stuffed up nobles at court. Um, and Henry absolutely loved him for it. And I grew to love him for it too. I have to say of, of the subjects I've written about, Cromwell has really stayed with me. Um, and, and it's been a joy to explore his, his story further through kind of giving talks and, and having lovely chats like this and, and also um, filming a new series about Thomas Cromwell as well. Can you tell us any more about that? Yes, well, um, it's sort of a, a companion series to um, The Fall of Anne Boleyn, which I filmed for Channel 5 over here in the UK um, last very, very early last year, just before uh, we were ever locked down. I filmed a, a series about The Fall of Anne Boleyn and looking at three the kind of three moments um, from arrest to trial to execution. And in that, Cromwell, of course, appears as the villain. You know, I've already kind of set out why. So it was great to be able to then film a series that told his side of the story. And I hope it will give people uh, a fresh understanding, perhaps a fresh sympathy for him. Um, again, it took the approach of following in Cromwell's footsteps. Um, now, a lot of Cromwell's London has has since been lost, been destroyed by the Great Fire or bombing raids. But we walked in the footsteps of, of his house at Austin Friars and spoke to an expert there, um, took a barge down the Thames. And and I love that sort of interactive 
um, experience. I, I also had it with, with Anne Boleyn, very much following her, in her footsteps. So we tried to keep that uh, for Cromwell. And, and it was wonderful because the very, very first day of filming uh, was outside Lincoln Cathedral. And Lincoln is my hometown. Uh, that's where I was born. And uh, we were talking about the, the pilgrimage of grace and the, the sort of uprisings against the, the reforms. So um, yeah, we filmed, we filmed there. So we kind of went all over the place. Um, but But the focus was very much on Cromwell, the man, and, you know, just who he was, not just what he did. So I hope that's going to come out soon. One thing that I have no control over is scheduling. So you film it, you kind of think, great, it's going to be out soon. Um, But, you know, we finished it last September. So who knows? Hopefully it will soon appear on Channel 5. And then on the book front, um, you just re-released your Cromwell book. Is that right? That's right. Um, so that was uh, re-released um, March last year um, to coincide with the final installment of, of Wolf Hall and all the kind of renewed interest in Cromwell. And I included some new material in the new edition, which uh, is a whole kind of chapter on Cromwell's London, uh, which I absolutely loved researching. So the buildings that are still there, those that have been lost, as I say, because the, you know, the great fire or, or whatever, um, there, there were lots of fires that destroyed these great Tudor buildings. Um, and, and again, it was that sense of, okay, let's follow Cromwell's life. Uh, let's follow him uh, in his footsteps and, and look at the traces of the world that he knew. And um, I loved it. As I say, I, I love that kind of social history and kind of painting a picture of what the city he knew and loved would have actually been like, what it would have smelt like, um, what it would have looked like. And, and you know, the, the, you know, everything from the kind of the seedy side of uh, south of the Thames uh, through to uh, shooting the rapids on the on the Thames under under London Bridge and then you know visiting some of the great palaces uh, throughout the city as well. So that was the sort of new material that I brought to my book. I had just um, you know finished. Oh gosh, how long ago was it? Now it seems like the last year has just been a haze, hasn't it? Yes doesn't it it's just gone it's been the strangest time it's sort of gone quickly but it's also seemed like forever right <laughs> well. and i was trying to remember i read fallen angel um oh. when did that come out that came out in november last year i had to think about that then because it was due out earlier and then lockdown number two happened and it it got delayed um so it came out in november sorry lockdown number one yeah i lose track anyway it was, it was, it came out on um, November the 5th, very appropriately, being around the time of the gunpowder plot and its aftermath. So, uh, yeah, I, I'll remember the date. <laughs> For those listening who maybe haven't heard the previous episodes where we talked about your trilogy, can you give them a brief idea of what it's about? Yeah, sure. So uh, the trilogy is actually um, set in the early Stuart period. So uh, it begins with the death of Elizabeth I. So I've got a kind of foothold in the Tudor period, but I am talking all about the Stuarts. And my heroine is uh, a woman who comes in the frame for witchcraft because she's a healer. She's an expert in in sort of herbal remedies. She's um, a noble woman. She's the daughter of one of Elizabeth's favorite ladies in waiting. So she's well born, but she kind of gets trained trapped in this dangerous world of the Jacobean court because James I, the king, is obsessed with the idea of witches and that 
you know, God has placed him on earth to get rid of them. So Francis is from the very beginning, very much in danger, but her danger increases because she gets embroiled in the gunpowder plot, this great Catholic plot to blow up the king and the houses of parliament. And she falls in love with one of the plotters. And of course, lots of drama ensues. And then the trilogy really follows Francis uh, throughout the reign of James with many more um, uh, foes and enemies to come, including James I's uh, eldest son, Prince Henry, who's quite a nasty piece of work. And then in The Fallen Angel, her kind of nemesis is the Duke of Buckingham. Now, I think of all the villains in this trilogy, I had the greatest fun with him because you know what? He made it easy for me. I didn't have to make up a lot. When it came to Buckingham, he really was that evil. <laughs> Yeah, he is one of those characters where you just want to reach into the pages and strangle him. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just when you think he can't get any worse, then he does something else. <laughs> yeah, and this trilogy, for anybody who loves the Tudors, and maybe you were like me and you were a little hesitant to go into the court of James I and take a look at what it, it was like, this is such a great introduction um, to pique your interest and want to keep learning more because you just paint such a great picture and make it so interesting. Oh, thank you. That's so great to hear. Um, cause you know, I, I know what it's like to be obsessed with the Tudors. And I myself was, you know, had some trepidation about leaving them behind for my first fiction. Um, but I became so fascinated with, with the world of the Stuart court and just what a dark and turbulent time it was. And, and there's very much a sense of big trouble ahead. You know, the sowed, uh, seeds are being sown rather for the civil war and all of the, the kind of tumultuous period that's to come later, uh, under the Stuarts. And I, I, yeah, I'm hooked now. Um, I'd love to write more on the period, um, whether fiction or nonfiction, actually. Uh, I think it definitely deserves more focus than it's had. Tracy, thank you so much for being on the show again. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. You know, the time just flies by. It's great to chat to you. Um, and thank you for having me on again. You know, I think before the year's out, we need to go for number five. I, okay. <laughs> well, guys, you can find tracy on twitter as at tracy borman um, she's on instagram as at tracy.borman she has a website tracyborman.co.uk what else Ah, oh, I think I think that's about it, really. I think you've you've been very good at better than me at reeling off my various social media kind of profiles. So yeah, um, that's it. I do keep my events page up to date on my website, and increasingly, of course, my events are online. I've st they will be going hopefully back to being on site, but it does make them obviously accessible kind of globally. So um, hopefully there's something to um, catch the interest of your fans and listeners. That would be great. And if you want to buy her books, they're available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I'm sure they're available on Waterstones as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can get them in most major bookshops. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. It's been such a pleasure. And now, Ask the Expert. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm Steph, and I'm here with author of The Bullion Women and The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women, Elizabeth Norton, to answer your questions about The Bullion Women. Thank you for joining us, Elizabeth. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So our first question comes from Al Pratt regarding who might have been the original Bullion Woman. Can you tell us who was Margaret Butler? 
So Margaret Butler is a fascinating character. So it's probably not necessarily realised by many people that all through sort of Anne Boleyn's glittering career and her fall, back home at Hever, there's Granny Boleyn watching as everything's going on. So Margaret Butler is Anne's grandmother. She is the mother of Thomas Boleyn, and she's so important to the family. She was a great heiress, but it's actually quite a lucky story. She was the daughter of the seventh Earl of Ormond, but by the time of her marriage to William Boleyn, Thomas Boleyn's father, her father hadn't inherited the earldom and wasn't likely to inherit the earldom. His bro- two of his brothers in turn had been earl. So it was quite a lucky inheritance, and even more lucky, as far as the Boleyns were concerned, the Earl of Ormond had only two daughters, Margaret Butler and then Anne St. Ledger. So when he died at the advanced age of around 90 in 1515, Margaret and Anne should have inherited all of the, Blin, the sorry, all of the Ormond family wealth. And the Earl of Ormond is an Irish peer, had huge estates in Ireland, but also over 70 manors in England, so very, very wealthy. And the Boleyns were able to secure, with the St. Ledger family, the English inheritance, but they lost control of the Irish inheritance. And that's really where Anne Boleyn comes in, because obviously we know that Anne was recalled from France to have a arranged marriage with an Irish cousin. And that's because a cousin of Thomas Boleyn on the Irish side claimed the earldom, and he was too influential for the English king, the English crown, to stop him taking the earldom. So his son marrying Anne was sort of seen as the next best thing. But we have Margaret Butler all through Anne's story. She went to live with Thomas at Hever. She seems to have been in ill health towards the end of her life. They say that she's a lunatic, which is a not very politically correct way of saying perhaps dementia. Um, Certainly she lived into her 90s and she outlived Thomas, dying in 1540. Okay, and now let's move on to a Bolin woman we do know, uh, Anne and Mary's mother, Elizabeth Howard. Danielle Teagan would like for you to give us some background on her and her lineage, if you can. So the Boleyns were so good at marrying well. Obviously, we've got Margaret Butler, but the next big marriage for the family was Thomas Boleyn's marriage to Elizabeth Howard. And again, this is a really high status, a really lucky marriage. She's not an heiress, unlike her mother-in-law, but she brings social status. So Elizabeth Howard was the daughter of the Earl of Surrey, and he had been the son of the Duke of Norfolk, but they'd lost their title for fighting for Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field. So throughout her childhood, she's the daughter of the Earl of Surrey. Um, Eventually, he became the second Duke of Norfolk when he won back Henry VIII's favour. So you can see it's a really socially prominent marriage. Um, Definitely, Elizabeth Howard far outranks Thomas Boleyn. You know, he's obviously got this connection to the Earldom of Ormond. He comes from a wealthy family, but she is socially at the absolute top of the tree. Her brother married one of Edward IV's daughters. This shows how socially prominent she was. We know that she spent time in her childhood at Sheriff Hutton Castle in Yorkshire, interestingly, with her first cousin, who was Jane Seymour's mother, which again shows how closely connected all of Henry VIII's wives were. She married Thomas Boleyn around the turn of the 16th century. We know that she quickly had children. Thomas Boleyn later complained that he'd had no money because she brought him every year a child. And we know, of course, of Mary, Anne and George. There are also two younger children or two children that seem to have died young, um, Thomas and Henry, and we have their, their memorials at Penshurst and Heber. So she was busy raising children, but she was also prominent at court. She came to court as a lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon. Um, 
there are actually rumours that she was a mistress of Henry VIII. And these are actually contemporary rumours, and they were put to Henry. Um, George Throckmorton actually approached him at court during his relationship to Anne while he was trying to marry Anne and said that he didn't think that the king should marry Anne Boleyn because it was thought that he had meddled with the mother and the sister. And Henry VIII sort of blushed and said, well, never with the mother. So there were rumours about Elizabeth Howard, and they don't seem to have had any substance. It may be that people confused her name with Elizabeth Blount, Bessie Blount. So Elizabeth Boleyn, Elizabeth Blount, it's quite similar. Or they may have been put about to smear Anne Boleyn. But there were certainly rumours about her. She seems to have been close to her daughters and to her son. And certainly Anne Boleyn talked about her mother in the tower, saying she thought that her mother would die of grief. So we can see a sort of a hint of a close relationship there. She outlived Anne, but only just, dying in 1538. And you mentioned some relationships, which we'll get into a couple of those later. But as far as the relationship between Elizabeth Howard and Thomas Boleyn, Al Pratt also wanted to know, could you describe their relationship? Did they have a happy marriage? So we don't actually know very much about the relationship between Elizabeth Howard and Thomas Boleyn, unfortunately. And it's just another one of those gaps that we have in Anne Boleyn's story because, you know, no one was really writing it down. We know that they had a child every year early in their marriage, which suggests they were close. They seem to have spent time together. Um, The only real hint we have is that... Elizabeth chose to be buried at Lambeth in the in the church at Lambeth, which is where the Howard family are buried. She didn't choose to be buried at Heber, where Thomas was planning to be buried. So that's maybe just a hint that at least towards the end of their life, they weren't particularly close. But again, we just don't know. Back to a topic you quickly touched on earlier that's on everybody's minds, of course. We know that um, both of their daughters were pursued by King Henry VIII. Um, As a mother, Duane asks, was Elizabeth distressed by this or did she see it more of an opportunity for her family? Again, we don't know fully what she thought about this. Um, There are sort of hints that the family didn't necessarily approve of Mary. Um, Certainly her marriage to William Carey wasn't particularly glittering. They could have done better for her, which sort of suggests they may have been trying to marry her off a bit Um, later in life. When Mary Boleyn remarried to a lower status second husband, she was cut off by her parents and also by her sister, which again sort of suggests that they had a bit of a rocky relationship. Um, Elizabeth is certainly at court with Anne Boleyn. So we know when Elizabeth Barton had an audience with Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth Barton is a nun of Kent who spoke out against the king's marriage. Um, And we know that when she was sort of coming to court and having audiences, Elizabeth Boleyn is right there with her daughter, Anne. And we know that she's there throughout Anne's queenship. We also know, of course, that Anne Boleyn um, spoke of her mother in the tower. So, I mean, I think we can assume that she approved of the relationship and that she wanted Anne to become queen. She's certainly there at court and she's seen as a, you know, a great lady, someone to cultivate, someone to speak to. So it's tricky. Um, There's not really any clear evidence for how she felt about Mary Boleyn's relationship with the king. And it it wasn't great news for your daughter to be the king's mistress, particularly Henry VIII. He wasn't particularly generous with his mistresses. And of course, it does damage their reputation. So I think the jury's out on Mary Boleyn. But with Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth definitely seems to have approved of the relationship and wanted Anne to become queen. So it's pretty clear then, based on what you said about the family cutting Mary off after her second marriage, that they were pretty opportunistic and ambitious and things like that. So Megan Elizabeth was wondering what 
other ways were they seen as opportunistic? Did did they pursue any positions of power in other ways besides marriages or even being mistresses? Yep. So the Boleyn family were definitely a family on the rise. If you go all the way back to Anne's great-grandfather, Geoffrey Boleyn, he was a hatter when he started his career. So he left Norfolk and went to London to begin a career as a hatter. And he quickly moved to the prominent merchants company and um, made his fortune. He became Lord Mayor of London. He married a nobleman's daughter. So he was very much on the up. And we can see that through various generations, the marriage to Margaret Butler, a great heiress, the marriage to Elizabeth Howard, who has a social status. Thomas Boleyn was known to be the best French speaker at the English court. He was very cultured, very cultivated. He was very, very politically adept. He was sent on numerous embassies by Henry VIII and seems to have done very well. Um, so we can see him building a career as a courtier and as a diplomat. And even without Anne Boleyn, Thomas Boleyn would have been someone to be reckoned with at the English court. George Boleyn too, Thomas's son, Anne's brother, was known as a poet. He was known for very, being very cultured. And he seems to have been groomed for a diplomatic career as well, albeit one that was sort of supercharged because of the relationship between Henry and his sister. But no, absolutely, the Boleyns are very much one of these families you get under the Tudors that really don't necessarily come from a long line of nobility, but they're sort of new men. They're, they're right up there. They're in the gentry class. They're just about touching the nobility. But using their, their cleverness and their ambition, they're able to rise through the ranks. And now focusing on Mary specifically a little bit now, what was Mary doing during Anne's time in the Netherlands? That question comes from the Renaissance Chronicles. So we don't really know. So Anne went to the Netherlands in 1513. There's a great deal of debate over which was the elder sister and how old Anne was when she went to the Netherlands. Um, she's usually given a birth date of either 1501 or 1507, and it's very hotly contested. I tend to fall on the 1501 side because I, I really don't see a six-year-old being sent to Brussels to serve as a maid of honour. It, it's just about possible, but it seems unlikely, particularly as we have a surviving letter that Anne wrote to her father. And again, it doesn't look like a six-year-old's letter. It looks like an older girl. But then there's a question of whether Mary is older or Anne. Most historians place Mary as the elder sister, but by no means all. And again, it's it's not really known. If Anne is the, is the younger sister, then it's surprising that it was she who was sent to Brussels. And it suggests that her father recognized her intelligence and her ambition and thought that she would do better than Mary. If she's the elder sister, it's it's more it's more understandable because you would tend to send your elder daughter. As far as we know, Mary Boleyn spent that period at home at Hever. She would have been with her mother. She would have been finishing up her education. Her mother would be paying particular attention to Mary's courtly education, so dancing, music, singing, languages, to ensure that she was able to attract a good husband when she was at court. Since we're talking about Mary, I have one of those questions that you definitely can't give us the exact answer to, but it's on everybody's mind. So Jessica Miller, among everybody else, would like to know which, if any, of Mary's children do you believe could potentially have been Henry VIII's? This is so tricky, as you say, and it's been debated since the 16th century. Um, and it really comes down to, you know, trying to work out when they were born and looking at how Henry treated them, how they were treated in the family. But it's really, really tricky. And it's one you just have to make a decision on. 
So Mary had two children. The elder was Catherine Carey, who was probably born in around 1524. And then the younger son, Henry Carey, on much firmer ground, seems to have been born in 1526. And we have a date of birth to him. So we're, we're fairly confident that that's correct. And he's 1526. Henry's affair with Bessie Blount, which preceded Mary Boleyn, produced um, Henry Fitzroy, his only acknowledged illegitimate child. Um, in my book about Bessie Blount, I argue that her second child, Elizabeth Tailboys, is also possibly the king's. But that's, I mean, that's debatable. Um, but that relationship with Bessie presumably ended in 1522 when she was married off to Gilbert Tailboys. And Mary Boleyn seems to have taken over as mistress around that point. So the dates work out, especially for Catherine Carey. She was born in 1524. If I was going to say either of the children was Henry VIII, so I, would, I would say Catherine Carey. Henry's Carey's birth is a little bit later, towards the end of Mary's time as mistress, possibly well after the end of it. So I think that's more debatable. Um, and we can see, I mean, we can see evidence of interest taken in them by Henry, particularly Catherine, and there are some grants to her on her marriage, things like that. So it, it's possible. Um, Henry VIII, of course, had much less reason to acknowledge a girl than a boy because, you know, he had, he had daughters. He didn't need any daughters. But the birth of Henry Fitzroy showed that he could father an illegitimate son. Um, if he really thought Henry Carey was his child, he most likely would have acknowledged him, although equally because it's he is also the son of Anne Boleyn's sister that he had reasons not to. So it's it's really difficult. If I have to make a definitive decision based on my reading of the sources, I would say Catherine Carey is very possibly Henry VIII's child. And I would say that Henry Carey probably isn't. But it's also possible that Henry VIII just didn't know, because unlike Bessie Blount, Mary Boleyn was married. And so actually the paternity of her children could have gone either way. I personally love believing that Catherine was his, so I'm glad to hear the expert agrees with me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with Catherine. I, th I think she's really a possibility. Perfect. So, okay, skipping around a little bit now. So Anne Boleyn was obviously executed, as was her brother George. So after their deaths... Um, Kristen Hernandez was wondering, did the relationship between Elizabeth and Thomas change at all? Do you think that she ever blamed him for the misfortune? And the next part of her question was, how did she treat Mary after the executions? But I think you've kind of touched on that already. So if we could just maybe focus on the relationship of the parents. So again, it's, it's guesswork, really. But I would say the fact that Elizabeth chose not to be buried with Thomas. And also there was talk of a new marriage for Thomas within a couple of months of her death. I would say that suggests that there might well have been an estrangement. Anne in the Tower said that she thought her mother would die of grief. She doesn't mention her father, which again suggests this close relationship. Um, it must have been absolutely devastating for both parents. I mean, there's, there's just no way, two ways around it. George Boleyn was obviously the great hope of the family. And Anne Boleyn was his daughter who'd done amazing things. And suddenly, you know, they've lost two of their three children. And the third one, they seem to be quite estranged from. Um, Thomas Boleyn seems to have promised Henry VIII that he'd make Elizabeth his heir, although ultimately Mary was the heir. Um, so I would say it's quite likely that there was some sort of estrangement. Thomas certainly seems to have tried to get back to court quite quickly. He was obviously present at the baptism of Prince Edward, which must have been a really difficult occasion for him, I think. Um, Elizabeth seems to have been in ill health. She died in 1538, and there's references to her being sore troubled by a cough 
in the years before then. So, I mean, she may well have been unwell in the period after Anne and George's death in any event. I know you just kind of mentioned that she was ill towards the end of her life, but prior to that, once Anne was executed, Sherry O'Neill asks how much interaction with Princess Elizabeth did Elizabeth Howard have um, again after her mother was executed? Unfortunately, we have no evidence at all, nothing on this at all, and it's such a shame. I mean, I'd like to think that they were visiting. The only recorded time that we have um, Anne's either of Anne's parents with Elizabeth is at Prince Edward's baptism and then Thomas Boleyn is present is present, and so is Princess Elizabeth, albeit that they don't seem to be interacting. So the answer is we don't know. I would suspect that they weren't given contact with Elizabeth. They weren't given access to her because obviously she's she's now illegitimate, but she's still the king's child and, you know, is well acknowledged as his child. And she was sort of squirreled away at palaces. Henry like his parents before him, maintained a system of sort of nursery palaces. So because the court was so unhealthy and was seen as bad and dangerous for children, he tended to farm out his children to these sort of smaller palaces on the edge of London. So Eltham in the south or Enfield, which is where Elizabeth was when Henry died, or Hartford, which is where Edward was when Henry died. And the children would live with a smaller household there to keep them away from the unhealthy court, but so that they could be visited by their parents. But I think it's really unlikely unfortunately, that Elizabeth Howard or Thomas Boleyn had any real direct contact with Elizabeth. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We always love letting our listeners ask and interact with our experts. So Elizabeth Norton, thank you so much for being on. We appreciate it. And just going forward, can you tell everybody a little bit about where or how that they can get in touch with you and check out your social media and your books and everything like that? Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. I've had so much fun. So they were great questions. Thank you, everyone, for sending them in. And, you know, I love I love answering questions. And I love talking Tudors. So if you want to get in touch with me, the best way is through Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. So you can find me in my, my I am E Norton History. So E and then Norton, N-O-R-T-O-N, History. Um, come and look me up. Say hello. I'd love to chat Tudors with you or in general, just royal history. I just tend to tweet whatever kind of catches my attention or comes to mind. Um, but that would be that would be lovely. And in the meantime, sort of working on books and filming and things like that. But contact me on Twitter. Thank you. And how about our, how about your books? Are your books on Amazon or any place else that we should look? Yes. So you can get my books on Amazon or um, in bookshops. I hope. Um, so my most recent book is the hidden lives of Tudor women in the US and in the UK it's called the lives of Tudor women and there's a slight change in the title both are available on Amazon don't buy the different don't buy one of each title because it's the same book and that does catch people out it's not my fault us Americans like the mysterious title better yeah yeah no so it was the US publisher that changed the title I like them both (laughs) but yeah so you can get me on Amazon um the Berlin women book is a little bit older but that's available um, Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor as well as my one before um, Tudor Women and that's also available so you know look at my books great well thanks again for coming on well thank you very much for having me I've really enjoyed it and now a brief history in June 1600 Queen Elizabeth I had only a thousand days left to live she was 67 years old and had reigned for 42 years and given the era's lifespans most people had never known in England without her One of those people was Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, great-grandson of Mary Boleyn, and the stepson of her beloved Robert Dudley. 
he inherited his stepfather's offices, and one might say he also inherited the job of being Elizabeth's chief companion. He was handsome and charming, well-educated and eloquent. He flirted with the queen and flattered her, but he seems to have imagined that gave him some power over her. Now, he found out, in the worst possible way, that he couldn't charm and bluster his way out of everything. On the 5th of June, 1600, Essex came up for trial. The previous year, he had been sent to put down a rebellion in Ireland, and instead, he had negotiated a truce with the rebels that some felt put the crown at a disadvantage. Elizabeth was displeased that he had disobeyed her, and she ordered him to remain where he was to await further instructions. Robert believed that Elizabeth's chief advisor, Robert Cecil, was plotting against him, and so, instead of obeying the Queen's order, he rushed back to London. Elizabeth was shocked when Essex appeared in her bedchamber one morning, covered in mud. Worse, he saw the Queen before she had been dressed and groomed for the day. The Queen was a woman who was careful about her presentation to the world, and Essex's behavior that fateful morning was a horrifying violation against the Queen. It would have felt like he had seen her naked. Essex was ungallant enough to make some disparaging remarks about her appearance that had to have hurt her deeply. Not only had he ripped away the carefully cultivated mask, but he was also cruel enough to mock her when she had shown him so much favor. He was found guilty at his trial and sentenced to house arrest and suspension of his offices. Elizabeth did not renew his main income source, which was the tax collection on wine. As she said, An unruly horse must be abated of his provender, that he may be the easier and better managed. She thought showing him what it was like to lose her favor would make him humble and contrite. But it only made Essex more desperate and unstable. We've heard that story before, haven't we? On the 16th of June, Queen Elizabeth attended the wedding of one of her maids of honor, Anne Russell, to Henry Somerset, later the Earl of Worcester. A painting was made of Elizabeth riding in a litter on her way to this wedding. She is portrayed as Gloriana, the ageless, ever-unchanging embodiment of her motto, ever the same. Clad in cloth of silver gown, her red hair piled high on her head and adorned with jewels. She would have dazzled onlookers with her splendor. She was presenting a calming, stable image to the people when the court was in chaos. The reality of the flesh and blood woman was somewhat different, as Essex had pointed out. In November, Essex began to plot with two other earls to seize control of the court and the queen. He planned that he would force her to listen to him by battling his way into her presence, where he would fall on his knees in front of her and plead with her to free herself of the evil influence of the counselors who were controlling her, and then call a parliament to alter the fabric of the government itself. He began to fortify his house and gather his followers, and on the 8th of February, 1601, he marched. Essex was overconfident and believed that the people of London would rise up to join him. He rode through the streets, waving his sword and shouting, To arms! To arms! For the Queen! A plot is laid against my life! 
but hardly anyone joined his ranks. After a single skirmish, he retreated, and his own men began to quietly slip away. His rebellion had lasted less than a day. Essex was arrested, and this time the charge was treason. His trial was over by the 19th of February, less than two weeks after he marched against the Queen. On Shrove Tuesday, the 24th of February, Elizabeth presided over the customary festivities and watched one of Shakespeare's plays performed at court. Likely, she was trying to demonstrate, with her gaiety and sense of normalcy, that she knew she had made the right decision, and Essex would not get mercy based on her emotional attachment to him. Elizabeth could be soft, but she was not weak. That night, she sent a message to the tower that the execution was to proceed. She even ordered that two executioners be provided so that if one was taken in a faint, the other might pick up the axe and proceed. On the 25th, Essex climbed the scaffold. He was the last person ever to be beheaded in the Tower of London. A romantic legend sprang up a few years later that Elizabeth had once given Essex a ring with the promise that if he ever returned it to her, that she would grant whatever he asked. The story goes that he dropped it from a window for a boy to deliver to a lady at court, but the child was confused and gave it to the wrong woman, an enemy of Essex. The woman hid the ring and only confessed to what she had done years later when she was on her deathbed. Elizabeth is said to have told her that God might forgive her, but Elizabeth never would. Westminster Abbey has a ring said to be the one from this tale, but the story does not appear to have any contemporary evidence to support it. There's no doubt, however, that the execution of her favorite had been hard on Elizabeth. John Harrington, who visited court around this time, wrote, I must not say much, even with this trusty and sure messenger, but evil plots and designs have overcome all of Her Highness's sweet temper. Some historians have cast doubt on this tale, if only because the idea of the queen being in possession of a sword that was apparently allowed to rust by careless servants is questionable. But it does describe how the queen's mood was seen at the time. She was struggling with loss and the realities of aging. But now many of her old and trusted friends like Cat Ashley and Blanche Perry, they were gone. And she had few people she could trust with the secrets of her soul. Though Elizabeth was in relatively good health, there was little doubt that the sun was starting to set on the reign of Gloriana. She had never named her heir, but quietly behind the scenes, preparations were being made for a smooth transition of power. Robert Cecil, Lord Privy Seal, had been corresponding quietly with King James of Scotland. In April 1601, the Scottish ambassadors met with Cecil, and an understanding of sorts was reached. While Cecil was unfalteringly loyal to Elizabeth, when she died, he would transfer those loyalties to James and help to bring him to the throne. He even started paying James a pension from the treasury. Some courtiers even began sending James gifts in hopes that he would remember them when he came into his kingdom. It was a difficult time for Elizabeth. Her court was fractious. Money was tight. People were said to be very generally weary of an old woman's government and eager for a change in regimes. 
To ease the strain on her budget, Elizabeth sold some of the jewels in her collection. The piece that had been a favorite of her father's, the Great Harry, his Great Seal, some of his chains of estate he had worn around his wide shoulders, and other items brought 10,000 pounds. Other pieces, considered less consequential, were simply melted down for the gold. In November of 1601, Elizabeth gave her last speech to Parliament, a speech now referred to as the Golden Speech, which ended with what is likely a very concise summation of her reign. And though you have had and may have many mightier and wiser princes sitting in this seat, you never had nor shall have any that will love you better. She was reported to have staggered under the weight of her robes when opening Parliament and visibly swayed when seated on the back of a horse, leading Henry Hunston to say it was not meet for someone of her years to be on horseback in the rain. Elizabeth retorted, My years! Maids, to your horses quickly! She rode off fast, and Hunston was in disgrace for two days. It wasn't the only time Elizabeth refused to accept the infirmities of age. The following year, it was reported that she was very merry and in such good spirits that, in token of her vigor and activity, she refused assistance in entering her barge, whereby, stumbling, she fell and bruised her shins. She seemed sprightly that summer, but she told the French ambassador that she was tired of life, for nothing now contented her or gave her any enjoyment. She said that she had warned Essex two years prior to beware of touching her scepter, for then she'd have no choice but to punish him according to the laws of the land. Elizabeth's courtiers noticed that a young Irish earl resembled Essex, and they tried to encourage him to flirt with the queen to lift her spirits, but Elizabeth made it clear that anything that brought Essex to mind was painful. In July, she headed out on her usual summer progress, but the court stopped at Oatlands and there remained. The queen hunts every second or third day, for the most part on horseback, and shows little defect in ability, albeit her face and other parts resembling old age, argue no little decay. A countrywoman viewing her in the progress told her neighbor standing near her that the queen looked very old and ill. One of the guard, overhearing her, said she should be hanged for those words, and frightened the poor woman exceedingly. Following winter came, cold and rainy. The court's Christmas, Elizabeth's last, was lively at least, with bear baiting, dancing, and many plays. Elizabeth fell ill with what sounds like a cold, and just when she seemed to recover, another. She made her last public appearance on the 6th of February, receiving ambassadors from Venice. Elizabeth greeted them in Italian and showed vestiges of her old spirit by pointing out Venice had refused to acknowledge her for 44 years because she was a woman, but now was willing to approach her to ask her for something. The court moved to Richmond, which Elizabeth had once called her warm winter box for my old age. At the end of February 1603 came the death of Catherine Carey Howard, granddaughter of Mary Boleyn and one of Elizabeth's closest companions for over 44 years. It was a terrible loss for the queen, and she was said to have wept extremely. And then came an ill omen. Her coronation ring, 
which could no longer be removed, had sunk into the swollen flesh of her finger and had to be sawn off. Elizabeth seems to have seen this as irrevocably breaking the bond with her people. At, quote, all the fabric of my reign, little by little, is beginning to fail, she wrote to Henry IV of France. Robert Carey, later Earl of Monmouth, visited and found the Queen ill-disposed. I found her in one of her withdrawing chambers, sitting low upon her cushions. She called me to her, I kissed her hand and told her it was my chiefest happiness to see her in safety and in health, which I wished might long continue. She took me by the hand and wrung it hard, and said, No, Robin, I am not well. And then discoursed to me of her indisposition and that her heart had been sad and heavy for ten or twelve days, and in her discourse she fetched not so few as forty or fifty great sighs. I was grieved, at the first, to see her in this plight, for in all my lifetime before, I never saw her fetch a sigh but when the Queen of Scots was beheaded. From that day forward, she grew worse and worse, she remained upon her cushions four days and nights at the least. All about her could not persuade her either to take any sustenance or to go to bed. She had a famous exchange with Cecil when he told her that, to content the people, she must go to bed. Elizabeth shot back that the word must is not to be used to princes, little man. If your father had lived, ye durst not have said so much. But ye know I must die, and that makes ye so presumptuous. A swelling in her throat grew until it stopped her speech, and then it burst. She choked until the doctors were able to dry it up. By the 18th of March, Court life had ground to a halt as everyone waited to see what would happen. Dull-eyed, she sat on her cushions with a finger in her mouth, refusing to go to bed as if she thought that she could fight off death itself by refusing to lie down. The next day, Carrie wrote to King James that the Queen had last no more than a few days. He had stationed horses along the route to Scotland, so he could get to James as soon as possible once the Queen had died. On the 20th, Cecil sent James a draft copy of the proclamation of his ascension to the throne. Finally, on the 21st of March, she agreed to allow her maids to change her clothing and put her into the bed. Over the past two weeks, she would only take a few sips of broth as nourishment. She ceased to even accept that. Around the country, preachers prayed from the pulpit for her recovery. Archbishop Whitgift came to pray with her. She could no longer speak when he asked her about her salvation. She raised her hands and eyes towards heaven. Three of Elizabeth's council, including Lord Cecil, approached her bedside and asked her to name her successor. According to the old stories, all she could do was lift her hands to her head and make the sign of a crown when James's name was mentioned. That night, she sank into a deep slumber from which she never awoke. She passed from this life to whatever lies beyond, mildly like a lamb, easily like a ripe apple from a tree. As soon as she realized her mistress was dead, Lady Scrope slid a ring from the queen's finger and dropped it from the window to Carrie, who was waiting on a horse below. He took the ring to King James to prove that Elizabeth had died. 
Just as Mary's ring once had been brought to Princess Elizabeth as she sat beneath an oak tree at Hatfield. It is said by some that the ring Carrie brought to James was one that concealed a secret locket inside. When opened, it reveals a portrait of Elizabeth and Anne Boleyn. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.